Let's pray together tonight. Fathers, we come to you in this place and as we have the privilege now to open your word and now that our hearts have been encouraged and our hearts have been challenged by those words that Christ is enough. And Father, for each of us, that means different things and that has a volume to it that resonates different within each and every one of us. And regardless of where we are tonight, regardless of where we're starting, Father, I pray that we'll grow in that understanding that Christ is enough. Holy Spirit, we pray that you'll be our teacher tonight and everything that is said and done that you will direct and that we will truly hear from you. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Thank you. If you would be seated, grab your Bibles and start the book of Matthew chapter 26 tonight. I want us to continue our journey on Jesus's last 24 hours. And we're going to do so looking at an event that... Uh, that might be somewhat uh, different for us. If, if you look at our country as a whole, um, there's 31 states that use capital punishment as the ultimate deterrent for crime. And Texas is one of those. And up until about 2011, uh, our state practiced a, a, a ritual where the condemned person, that one that was facing execution, they were allowed to choose what they would have for their last supper before their Execution. Now, I don't know if this is a fact or this is absolutely true, but quite possibly this ritual of allowing one that was facing execution to choose the last meal that they would enjoy before that they were executed quite possibly gets its origin from the event that we're going to study tonight in the book of Matthew chapter 26 as we again continue our journey through Jesus's last 24 hours. And tonight we're going to be looking at Jesus's Last Supper. But as I talked to you last night, we're not looking at these events and we're not looking at this chronological order of things just so that we gain a better understanding of the historical concepts of the historical events that took place. It's my desire that we will grab practical application from this. And so tonight I want us to use this Last Supper of Jesus for us to be able to remember and for us to be able to evaluate. And I'll come back to those two statements here in just a few moments. So we are in Thursday afternoon, Thursday evening. If you were to go back as we did last night and trace the chronological order of things, we find ourselves on Thursday evening, 24 hours before Jesus Christ is to be crucified. And in our story tonight, Jesus has gathered with 12 of his closest friends. They've gathered in an upper room at a location that they borrowed from someone else. And while there's no doubt in the three and a half years as we've studied scripture where Jesus and his best friend, they they spent time together. They spent copious amount of times together that they would have had thousands, at least hundreds of meals together where they ate together and they conversed together and they shared food together. But this meal that they're about to participate in tonight, this meal is quite different. This literally is Jesus's last physical Meal. He became incarnate. He became God in flesh at his birth in Bethlehem. And this is the last meal in that physical body that he has. This will be the last meal that he will partake of in that physical body. Now, for the disciples, they come to that upper room because they understand that they're coming together to participate in a Passover meal that they had done at other times, no doubt, with Jesus. But this meal tonight that we find ourselves here on this Thursday night, the primary reason that Jesus has gathered them together is not for the Passover meal. Instead, he's gathered them together to institute a memorial. 
Now, for those of us that are married, for us men that are married and for you young men that think at some point you probably will be married. We know and you need to quickly understand there is one date in the calendar that you simply do not forget. Am I right, guys? The date is you never forget your what? Opening week, the opening weekend of deer season, right? Absolutely. No, we never forget our anniversary. We never, never. Now, there's a lot of stories of those of us that have and kind of the fallout of some of those things. But if you're really smart and you do things the right way, you never forget your anniversary. And, and I believe there's a good reason for that. I believe if we remember the wedding day and we remember that very important date each year, it gives us the opportunity to be able to step back from the hustle and the bustle and the daily grind of life. And we're able to step back and for that moment, maybe it's at a dinner or maybe it's throughout the entire day. We have these moments where we think back about the vow that we made on that special day. And not only should we think about the vow that we made on that special day, but that day also gives us the opportunity to be able to evaluate the vow that we made. It gives us an opportunity to remember the vow and it gives us the opportunity to evaluate how we're doing with that vow. Because what happens is when a year passes by or five years pass by or 10 years pass by or 25 years or 30 years or for some in our congregation that have been married for over 60 years. When you get in the habit of just doing married life, oftentimes, ladies, maybe I'm wrong, but maybe we forget about those butterflies that we had in our stomach when that door opened and we saw our groom standing there at the front of the altar ready to marry us. If we don't take time to step back and to remember when that door opened, guys, we saw our bride, we saw our blushing bride, our, 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 our love of our life and our knees begin to buckle just a little bit. If we don't take a moment each year, maybe we don't remember. And if we don't remember, then we definitely don't evaluate how we're doing with that commitment that we made. And that's when marriages get into trouble. That's when marriages begin to take each other for granted and they just begin to go through the motion and they lose the intimacy and they lose the closeness that was established when that vow was taken and their marriage was united. I believe Jesus Christ knows us better than anyone. He knows us better than we know ourselves. And he knows about us that as human beings, we have the habit to forget, especially as we get older and especially as we get further removed from the actual event, it becomes harder for us to remember all the details that were around it. So at this last supper that we find here in the book of Matthew, chapter 26, Jesus is establishing a memorial. He's come to the upper room with his disciples, his close friends to celebrate the Passover meal. But he's establishing a memorial and that memorial is for us to be able to always remember how much Jesus loves us. And then it's there and it's put in place so that then we can evaluate what we're doing with that love that Jesus has given to us. So in the upper room, we see a memorial that's being established for us. And so tonight I want us to look at this Last Supper in Matthew chapter 26. And I want it to, to, to use this in an application form to give us the opportunity to evaluate our salvation. And then be able to remember whether or not that salvation has ever taken place. So let's begin reading in Matthew chapter 26 and verse 17. It says, now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, 
Where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says my time is near. Now, last night I shared with you that when we enter into the upper room on this Thursday evening, that there's great suspense and there's great, great uh, uh, things going on in the atmosphere in the room. There's this smell of betrayal that's in the air, but also there's this weight, there's this shadow There's this understanding of death that looms over our hero, Jesus Christ. I know that because of the verse that we just read here. He said, go into the city and find this man and tell him we're going to use your upper room because the teacher says, my time is near. If you were to go back and read through the Gospels and you were to read throughout the story of Jesus, you would find that oftentimes his mother or his brothers or his disciples, they would ask him to go do something. And he would step back and say, I won't do that yet because my time has not come. It's not time for me to go to that extent yet. And any time that Jesus is talking about my time is, is near or my hour has not yet come, he's specifically referring in the Gospels to his crucifixion. He was always saying, it's not time for my crucifixion yet. I'm not going to go into that situation because I know people are waiting there to kill me. And it's not time for my crucifixion yet. But that's not what he says in this passage of scripture. He says, go into the city, find a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is near. Jesus was very clear in the fact that he was living the last 24 hours of his life. He very clearly understood he was entering into this upper room with his disciples, with his closest friends. And this would be his last meal that he would celebrate with them. He understood this would be the last opportunity that he had to truly help them understand what he was about to do with them. So rather than just spending time in a meal, he uses it as an opportunity to establish a memorial. He said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is near. I am to keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and they prepared the Passover. Now, every Thursday, fourth Thursday in November, as a nation, we pause and we celebrate Thanksgiving. Now, for most of us, the reason that we come together at this great banqueting table with all of our friends and with all of our family is because we want to eat to gain the sustenance that we need to be able to watch the football game when our favorite team, the Dallas Cowboy, beats whoever they're playing later that afternoon, right? That's why we celebrate Thanksgiving. But that's not really why we should be celebrating Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is the time set apart in our country where we remember... That there was a time when God provided bountifully for the food that we were able to partake in. And not only that, there was a period of time where God provided the country for us to be able to enjoy called the United States of America. That's what Thanksgiving is about. It is about us remembering the goodness of God on our family and on our country. Well, the Passover meal that we see taking place in the upper room that night, it is the Jewish Thanksgiving. After being held captive in Egypt for 400 years, the children of Israel are emancipated. They are delivered from their slavery. They are delivered from their bondage by one of God's chosen leaders, Moses. And on the night that Moses delivers the children of Israel from their captivity in Egypt, God sends a plague throughout all of Egypt. 
And that plague is to announce death on the firstborn in every home that's located in that country. The purpose of this plague, the purpose of this event was so that God could force the hand of Pharaoh to finally take action on his announcement. Pharaoh, let my people go. But before this plague occurred, God instructed the children of Israel that they needed to take a lamb and they needed to set it aside and they needed to watch that lamb. And they need to make sure that that lamb had no blemishes, it had no deformities, it had nothing about it that would cause it to not be worthy to be sacrificed to God. And once they had established that it was a worthy lamb, they were to kill the lamb and they were to drain the blood into a basin. And then they were to take that blood and they were to sprinkle that blood on the doorposts of their home. So that that night when God sent the death angel to every single home in Egypt, to those homes that he did not find the blood of that perfect lamb sprinkled on the doorpost, it was in that home that the firstborn would die. But every home where the blood of the perfect lamb was sprinkled, the death angel would pass over that house and that firstborn child would be saved. It's that night in Egypt that the Passover meal is remembering. It's the night that the Israelites celebrated this most important feast on the Jewish calendar, the Passover of the death angel. Now, by the time that we find ourselves some 1500 years later in the upper room with Jesus and his disciples on this very Thursday night. Passover in Jerusalem is in full swing. Four days before Passover occurred, which it's about to occur in the upper room, four days before that, all of the Israelites, all of the families, they were to find a perfect lamb and they were to set it apart. And for four days they were to watch it. They were looking for deformities. They were looking for disabilities. They were looking for some kind of blemish. They were looking for anything to be wrong with that lamb so that it could not be worthy enough to be offered as their family's sacrificial Passover lamb. Four days of observance comes to an end on the Thursday afternoon before we find ourselves in the upper room on Thursday evening. That afternoon, each family has taken a perfect lamb that they have watched. They've taken it to the temple to be sacrificed by one of the priests on the altar there at the temple. And so in Matthew chapter 26 and verse 19, when it says the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and they prepared the Passover, I believe not only were they securing the room for Jesus to eat the Passover at, but I believe that they also had gone to the temple and taken a lamb to be sacrificed there by one of the priests so that that lamb would be a correct lamb to be part of the Passover celebration. It's been estimated that due to the population in Jerusalem and all those that had come to partake in the Passover, by this point in history, there would have been as many as 250,000 lambs that would have been sacrificed on that Sunday afternoon. Or excuse me, that Thursday afternoon. Now, I want you to think about that. 250,000 lambs are sacrificed at the temple on that Thursday afternoon. For that to transpire, it's believed that it would have taken 600 priests killing four lambs every minute for two solid hours 
to sacrifice enough lambs to be used in the Passover celebration that's happening on that Thursday afternoon of Jesus' Passover meal. Do you get the picture? There is a lot of blood flowing off of the altar, off the altar there in Jerusalem. And the reason I share that with you tonight is because you're going to need to understand that when we come back tomorrow to looking at Jesus and he travels to Gethsemane through the Kidron Valley to go to Gethsemane to participate in his holy prayer, which will be the event that we'll talk about. And we're going to come back to this understanding of the amount of blood that was flowing off of the altar there at the temple of Jerusalem. But before we get to there, we're here at the Passover feast with Jesus and his disciples. And they're about to participate in what reminded the Israelites of how their lives were spared in Egypt because of the love of God. They were to understand at Passover that the firstborn of their forefathers and the firstborn of their grandfathers and ultimately the firstborn that produced them as an offspring. That the reason that they even existed was because God had passed over their house, not because of anything they had done, not because of any righteous acts that they had participated in. The only reason that the death angel passed over their forefather's house there in Egypt was because of the grace and the mercy of God. Every lamb that was slain, every sacrifice that was offered was a reminder of God's love For the entire nation of Israel. So tonight we find ourselves in the upper room on Thursday evening. And we find the one that John the Baptist had described in this way. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We find this Jesus that has now been pronounced. At the beginning of his earthly earthly ministry as the supreme Passover lamb, we find him in the upper room with these 12 disciples that he's been walking with for three and a half years. With these 12 disciples that have had three and a half years to investigate him. These 12 disciples that have had three and a half years to observe him. These disciples and friends that have three and a half years to see, is there any blemish in this Lamb of God? Is there any deformity in this Lamb of God? Is there anything wrong with this Lamb of God that would preclude him from being our Messiah and Savior? And on this Passover night in Matthew chapter 26 and verse 20, it says Jesus was reclining at the table With his 12 disciples. It would have been around 6 p.m. in the afternoon. Jesus has finished washing the disciples' feet. His disciples are beginning to enjoy the meat. They're beginning to enjoy the bread. They're beginning to enjoy the cups that constitute the Passover meal. A meal that's been observed for over 1,500 years. A meal that predated the giving of the law to Moses. A meal that predated all of the other festivals. It predated the Levitical priesthood. It predated all of the laws that we find that God gave. This is the oldest celebration of the Jewish people. Jesus is in the upper room. And this Passover meal, 1,500 years in existence, 
It's about to be different. Tonight would be the conclusion of the old covenant. Tonight would be the last Passover meal sanctioned by God Almighty himself. The disciples are oblivious to this fact. They're enjoying the lamb. They're enjoying the bread. They're enjoying the the wine. And Jesus clears his throat. throat) And he looks at his disciples. They reach for their cup of wine because they want to wash down what they've been enjoying. And Jesus stops them in their tracks. And in Matthew chapter 26 and verse 26, it says, while they were eating, Jesus took some bread. And after a blessing, he broke it and he gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat. This is my body. And if you listen very carefully, stunned silence has now entered into the room. They had eaten the Passover meal with Jesus before. They they, they knew Jesus was doing something different than the cup ritual that was part of the Passover meal. He's doing something that he's never done before. This is a picture that I took from my cell phone today. This is a picture of my family at Easter a couple of years ago. And I carried on my cell phone and when we go on mission trips or we go places and they say, tell me about your family. I pull out my cell phone, I push a button and I say, this is my family. Now, is that my family? No, that's not my family. That's a representation of my family. And so when Jesus is in the upper room that day and he breaks the bread and he hands it to his uh, uh, disciples and he says, take, eat, this is my body. He wasn't saying this is my physical body. The piece of bread that day did not somehow take on the essence of Jesus's body. The bread that day did not somehow transform itself into the actual fleshly body of Jesus Christ. Just like that picture is a representation of my family, the bread that Jesus is dealing with is a representation of his body. He he breaks that bread and he gives it to the disciples and he's helping them understand this represents my body, the Lamb of God that's about to be slain for your sins. They're processing this. They're they're trying to get their mind around it. Everything's different. But before they could say anything, before the shock of what's just happened is worn off, he just continues. Verse 27. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you. For this is my blood. Same deal as with his body. He's using a symbol. This symbol of this juice that you see in this cup. It is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Now his disciples are really blown away. They are stunned by what he's just saying. There is nothing more repulsive. There is nothing more gross to a Jewish person than the idea of partaking of actual blood. 
It was forbidden in the Old Testament. Jewish people were never to have anything to do with any kind of meat or the actual blood of anything. And ingesting blood was absolutely repulsive to them. It was such an important part of their culture. When you go to the book of Acts and you begin to read how that the testimony was that both Jews and Gentiles were being saved and coming into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. They had this big meeting in Jerusalem. And in that meeting in Jerusalem, they determined, yes, both Jews and both Gentiles are being saved by God. But the Jews made a request of the Gentiles that are being saved. Flee from sexual immorality and please don't ever mess with blood. That's just something that we just cannot get over with. It's just something that in our Jewish culture and understanding, it's just not kosher. Right? Kosher is the process of preparing meats in such a way that all of the blood is extracted from that meat so that a Jewish person would never partake of any piece of meat that would have blood inside. And here's Jesus handing them a cup and says, this is the picture of my blood now ingested. There's no way in the world that that became the actual blood of Christ. It's a picture. It's a symbol in the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant. That's what he says in the book of Luke. If you read what we're reading in the book of Matthew, he says, hey, I want to give you this because this blood is my covenant. But when we read about this story in the book of Luke, Luke's version says, I want you to understand, Jesus says, I'm establishing for you a new covenant. This old covenant, this old Passover system that you've been observing is the foreshadow to what I'm about to accomplish for you in 24 hours. And so I'm going to establish a new covenant. And that new covenant is not going to be through the hundreds of thousands of lambs that are being sacrificed each Thursday afternoon before Passover. This new covenant It's going to be the fulfillment of what that was picturing. And it's going to be my body, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. It's going to be my body, the new covenant, the new the new understanding of how a person comes into the relationship with Jesus Christ. This is the memorial that Jesus Christ is establishing. He's helping us understand that it's the blood of the Lamb of God that is poured out. For the forgiveness of our sin. And it is the only sacrifice that ever needed to take place. Because after that, no other sacrifice would do the job. Jesus' Last Supper becomes our memorial that we call the Lord's Supper. So what does this have to do with preparing our hearts for Easter? Well, when you came in tonight, we offered you a piece of paper. And I need everybody to have one of those pieces of paper right now. If you don't have one of those, would you raise your hand and our ushers will bring one to you. I want to pause here for just a moment. It's very important that you have this. Got a few more sheets that are needed right up here. Yep. We have them. 
Okay, we're going we're gonna to go make sure that we have those for you. In just a few moments, we'll ask you to raise your hands and we'll get those to you. What does this have to do? What, if, what, what am I talking about now? What does this have to do with preparing our hearts for Easter? The communion table that's set up before us tonight, it's an opportunity for us to remember and to evaluate. It's an opportunity, first and foremost, for us to remember when we came to the understanding that Jesus Christ is the new covenant. That the shedding of Jesus Christ's blood is the only sacrifice acceptable to give us eternal life. And so in preparing our hearts for Easter, to make sure that we are in the place that we need to be, to truly be able to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ, because that's the definite way that he proved that he was God, and he is the only one that has the power to take away the sins of the world, we need to remember the moment that we came into that personal relationship with him. So you have a piece of paper there in front of you, and it simply says, remember. So what I want you to do right now is I want you to write out and tell yourself about that day that you asked Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Savior. You may not remember the day. I don't remember the date. But I want you to remember when it was that you came to the understanding that you needed Jesus Christ. And I want you to write yourself a memory about when that took place. It was about midnight and Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God. 
And the prisoners were listening to them, and suddenly there came a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison house were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's chains were unfastened. When the jailer awoke and saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried, he cried out with a loud voice saying, do not harm yourself for we're all still here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And after he brought them out, he said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? I want you to look at your piece of paper. I don't want you to look at the person next to you. I don't want you looking at me. Put your eyes on your piece of paper. The question has been asked. How am I saved? And I'm fixing to read to you the answer. And when you look at your piece of paper, and if it says something different than what I'm about to read to you, then you've got to evaluate whether or not what you're trusting in for your salvation is biblical or not. I'm not asking you to deny what denomination you are. I'm not asking you to deny what tradition you were raised in. I'm asking you to evaluate tonight under the reading of God's word. Whether or not you truly have a born-again relationship with Jesus Christ. The question is, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Listen, look at your piece of paper. Evaluate what you've written down in light of what I'm about to share. And they said, believe In the Lord Jesus Christ. And you will be saved. They did not say be baptized. They did not say join a church. They did not say be of a certain denomination. They said believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ that is the Lamb of God. That can take away the sins of the world. See when we come to the communion table. That's where it starts. We have to be able to remember. A moment. That place. That time. That understanding of when we. Made Jesus Christ our Lord and Savior. When we believed in him. As the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Not a way to heaven. The only way to heaven. That's what we have to remember. Now I want you to take your piece of paper and I want you to turn it over. Now on the back of your piece of paper it says not remember, but it says evaluate. Evaluate. No one looking around, just looking at your piece of paper, not looking at what anybody else is saying or doing. Based on what I just shared with you, first of all, evaluate what you're holding on to for salvation. Are you holding on to a moment in which you recognize Jesus as your Savior or to something different? That's the first evaluation. 
The second evaluation I'm going to ask you to make now, if you have remembered a time that you made Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior, I'm going to now ask you to do this. Evaluate what you're doing with that. What are you doing with that love that He's given you? What are you doing with that love that He's bestowed you? With that lavish gift of eternal life, what are you doing with it? Evaluate your marriage through the lenses of God's love. Evaluate your service to God through the lenses of a God that would get on His knees before His disciples and wash their feet. Evaluate not what you're doing for salvation. What are you doing as a result of your salvation? I'm just going to ask you to take a few minutes and just write that out. to come to the communion table and we're going to take a piece of bread which is a symbol of Christ's body that was broken for us we're going to take a cup of juice which is a symbol of the blood that he shed for us but before we do that I want us to take just a few moments now that we vividly have taken time to remember and to evaluate to make sure that we're ready to come to the table. So we're going to worship together. And if you're here this this evening and you realize you can't remember a time that you made Jesus Christ your Lord. I'm going to be right there. And I would love to have the opportunity to help you take care of that tonight. Maybe in your evaluation, you, you found some areas in your marriage or in a relationship or in something that you're doing that you just know that that doesn't match up with this Jesus that saved you. Maybe you need to come and lay that here and give that to God so that you're prepared to come to the table. Maybe you need to go to someone else and ask them to pray with you or ask for their forgiveness or I, I don't know. But you do. Because as you looked at that piece of paper and as you looked at that word evaluate, God spoke to you. And you know what he's saying to you right now about what you need to do. And this is your opportunity to do it before we come to the table. So if you would just very quietly and reverently, if you'll just stand to your feet and let's worship. You just do what God's putting upon your heart right now to do.